Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome back to Patty's podcast. We're back. We've been away for a few weeks now, but we've got a few more episodes. And um, today we're back with um, a brilliant guest. Patty, do you want to say a little bit about who we have? Yes, I would really like to welcome um, a great friend of mine, really fun guy. He's absolutely fabulous, plays amazing keyboards, and his name's Spike Edney. Now, Spike plays keyboards with Queen. Um, if you're a Queen fan, you might not really have seen him, but he's there, and he's, he's their kind of musical director. And Spike's favourite cocktail is a vodka martini. So we made the vodka martinis for him, but then he wanted another, he had another little request, which was stuffed olives with blue cheese. Combined with the, with the drink, it was absolutely sensational. We had a very, very, very good session. We did. And I, I've got to say, after this session, I, I loved it so much that I went and bought the ingredients <laughs> and now it's a regular in my household. Oh, really? So, yeah. So I really enjoyed it and um, we hope you do too. So with that said, this is Cocktails with Patty and Spike. Okay, so this is not the traditional way of using a shaker or anything like that. You don't have to do that. Mm -hmm. What you do is just put a dribble of vermouth into each glass. Now, then... should I have put this in the fridge first? Well, it, it doesn't matter. Tell me when to work. Oh, that's it. Oh, that's enough. Then you swill it around. It's called, this is called a vermouth wash, okay? You cover every surface, then throw them away. I'm not chinking. I'm giving you that so you can do it. Throw them away? Yeah, empty it. But really? Swirl it around so it covers the whole surface of the inside of the glass. Okay. Oh my gosh. All right. All right. And now we're away. And now because the the, the vodka hasn't been has the vodka been chilled? No. Okay. Be chilled. Let's put some ice in then, just so, just for the sake. Put put some ice in the glass. What we're doing here is very much a kind of uh, um, not cut price, but uh, shortcut way of doing it because traditionally you would fill a cocktail shaker full of ice and you would shake the vodka in there with it yeah and then just tip it out but here we're going to be a little bit more sort of you won't want to do much after this um but you know what they say about martinis don't you tell me what they say they're like nipples one's not enough and three's too many <laughs> all right so then now, my wife, Kyle, gets very upset the fact that I like blue cheese olives um, because she insists that uh, proper martinis come with small cocktail olives, maybe with a pimento inside. But I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, recipes evolving mm -hmm. over the years, right? You can say, okay, uh, the sort of heyday of the martini apparently was in the 20s. The Roaring Twenties was when it really came to its own. Uh, so, I'm, so I've read. And um, in the sort of 50s and 60s, the small olive with the um, little red pimento was the standard. 
Yes. But people improvise. You get a recipe for something, and if you can think of another way of doing it. So over the years, especially in the US, you get um, flavoured or stuffed olives, and they can be stuffed with jalapeno peppers, anchovies, uh, garlic. Almonds. Almonds. And, um, of course, they're available everywhere. Uh, you can go to any old supermarket and you'll see a whole range of stuffed olives. But here in England, we're very sort of um, old-fashioned and a, it's kind of blinkered, and we haven't got to that yet. I notice in the supermarket you can get a one jar with a variety of them in. That's the first time I've ever seen that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but you can't get a jar of blue cheese olives yet. I've never, I must have never seen it oh. anywhere. Oh. Anywhere. And I haven't even really looked for it in America. Well, I became obsessed, not obsessed, um, what's the word? Enthused. Yeah. Enthused with uh, martinis when I went on a tour in the early 90s with Duran Duran. And one of the other guys on that tour was a New Yorker called Stan Harrison, saxophone player. And his two big passions were martinis and oysters. Mm. Not necessarily at the same time, but he loved them both. And so whenever we had a day off anywhere, he would say, where are we going? Let's go and, f let's go and find the best martini we possibly can. And I, I called it the quest for God's martini. <laughs> and we, yeah. So we were constantly looking for an absolutely perfect martini. And if we found some great oysters as well, then, you know. Heaven. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so that, was our, that was our focus for a world tour that lasted two and a half years. So I really did yeah. it. My gosh. And so his passion remained, did it, throughout the tour? Uh, and beyond that, to the point where he sends me recipes uh, that appear in various New York magazines about, you know, where the best martini is in town. And, and when you visit this city, wherever it may be, um, you need to go to this bar or that bar. And in fact, I've sort of adopted the mantle myself. And if you go to uh, places like Barcelona... There's the 100 Martini Bar, where there are recipes for 100 different martinis. Wow. With a, a, a waiter, a, a, sorry, a barman who knows all about them and will give you the complete lowdown. I mean, there's a whole culture going on of martinis. So. How fantastic. Well, when we spoke to Nick Cook, he chose a martini, but he said his is the classic martini. So from the classic, everything else evolved. Yes. Now, uh, the classic martini was based on gin. And I don't think vodka came around to the 60s. Did, we, did he? Were we drinking gin? Do you remember? Oh, we were. Okay. Okay. And um, as I understand it, there was a town just outside of San Francisco on the coast back in the 1800s called Martinez. EZ on the end of it. Mm -hmm. And apparently they say, legend has it, that the barman in that town invented the martini. Wow. And it was a Martinez. And people used to drink it when they came off the ferry across from San Francisco or something. So this is folklore. We don't know whether it's true or not. How but, it, but it's great. But what's curious about it, and I'm, I think it's the 60s or 70s when sort of kind of it evolved into vodka, could be either or, the, is the um, ration of spirit to vermouth, okay? Back in the early days, it was one-to-one, -one, half and half, you know, oh, yeah. which is actually quite appalling when you think about it because yeah. the strong the taste of the vermouth would be really overpowering and they say that over the years it kind of started coming down um and the, uh, various people endorsed it there was one that was uh, 
as, as it got lower and lower to, to where we've just done the vermouth wash, on the, way, on the way to that, there was one called the Montgomery, which was named after General Montgomery of Alamein, uh, who liked uh, 15 parts of gin to one part of vermouth. <gasps> <laughs> and it's called the Montgomery yeah. because um, he, he, he would only attack when he had overwhelmingly superior numbers. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I love that. And then you have the other two sort of legends um, who adopted the martini. Noel Coward, of course, you know, mm -hmm. uh, product of the, the 20s and 30s. And he was absolutely insistent that... Um, actually, there's a quote here, which I made a note of. Okay, here we go. Noel Coward is credited with the assertion that a perfect martini should be made by filling a glass with gin and then waving it in the general direction of Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Churchill martini uh, uses no vermouth at all and, in fact, should be prepared with gin straight from the freezer whilst glancing at a closed bottle of dry vermouth. <laughs> <laughs> or with a sly bow in the direction of France. Oh, my God. I love that. So then we got things like the dirty martini, which I actually quite like. That's with the splash of the olive brine. Yes. Yes. And then we have something which I've never heard of uh, before. The perfect martini uses equal amounts of sweet and dry vermouth together. Now I always thought that sweet vermouth in martini was an aberration. Yeah. So I'm very upset about that. And but I will try it. Louis Buñuel, the famous. Um, director and artist, used to use martinis to sustain, quote, a reverie in a bar, and his one involves Angostura bitters. So there are quite a lot of variations on the thing. And of course, James Bond with the stirred and shaken nonsense. Somerset Maugham said a martini should always be stirred, not shaken, so that the molecules lie sensuously on top of one another. Gosh. And in fact, in Casino Royale, um, Ian Fleming invented the Vespa Martini, named after Vespa Lind, the girl, which was uh, an equal measure of gin and vodka and lilette or lilet as well. So, what is lilette? Lilet? Lilet is a little bottle of um, of a French fortified white, I think. Oh, now you know what you poured this, and we're staring at these two glasses, and I'm it? wondering, is it time to have a sip now? I think it's very much time to have a sip. Cheers. Cheers. Fabulous. Mm. So. Wow. Oh, that Gosh. put hairs on parts of you you didn't expect. That hit the roof of my mouth. Okay, get the cheekbones glowing. <laughs> um, in America, of course, where we have these wonderful cocktail shakers, they're actually wonderful pieces uh, to look at and you can get them in glass and, and stainless steel and silver and all that kind of thing. But I've... Um, being impatient, I only use those if guests come and they expect it. I, I go a much faster route, okay? I've got my own little system. And what I do is I keep dry vermouth in a little hand spritzer. <laughs> so what I do is I just spritz the inside of the glass. And then... You're very camp, you know. I know, okay. <laughs> Throw the... Uh, I, I've heard this. Um, throw the ice in and then plonk, splosh the, uh, the vodka, I drink vodka, um, on the top. Now that takes, that's so fast, yes. but it's a very sort of, I don't know, council estate version of, of a martini. 
if one could say that, rough and ready, let's say. <laughs> and uh, but it's but it's really fast, and I call it a trailer swift. Because, <laughs> Go on. It's what you drink in trailer parks, you know. Um, and um, and I like that. And I actually evolved the process by finding that I could smuggle my little spritzer onto planes. So when I travel transatlantic, I take a plastic martini glass <laughs> and my spritzer, and I take some blue cheese olives in a little. Uh, Do you really? In a little tube. Yes. Oh my gosh! Now you've learned all this sort of. Um, these ways of keeping a bit of home with you <laughs> as you go on tour, because you've been touring for years now, yeah, haven't you, things. with various bands? Who yes. did you start with? Um, well, I started, first of all, in a little local unheard of band in Gosport called Smiling Hard, uh, who uh, trod the boards uh, in the 70s because... England was a much different uh, scene back in the 60s and 70s. Um, there were so many places where live music could be seen and could be heard. In their heyday, the Beatles would play three shows a night in Liverpool. Mm. They'd do a late session, an early evening session. Sorry, a post, all the office workers would go to a session. Then they'd do another one. They'd do a late night one. Now, the, over the years, years they, those kind of opportunities were eroded as culture changed. Uh, but when I got serious about music in the late 60s, early 70s, there were still lots of places to play. And you could make a living as an unheard of musician, i.e. you could be in a setup where your band wasn't famous, you didn't have a record deal. But if you were good enough to fill the dance floor, you got work. And so I spent from 1970 through to 1977 doing just that. And I suppose that's learning the trade kind of thing. Um, during the course of that, I got hooked up with visiting American soul singers. There were still lots of American Air Force bases in the UK around the 60s and 70s. Uh, you remember all the, all the anti-nuke protests yes. up at Greenham Common and stuff like that. Yes. They were based around the American Air Force bases and they were all through Europe. And so uh, to, to entertain the soldiers and the airmen that were here from America and to help them have a, a taste of home, um, American artists would come over and perform for them. Now, for an American singer, bringing a 10-piece band is a very expensive business for everybody concerned, and they didn't like that idea. So they would like to bring over the singer, a musical director, a guitar player or keyboard player or whatever, and then hire locally. So... Bands in the UK, if you had a sax player or a horn section, you were prime target. And we had two horn players. So the first thing we do is get asked, will we do a tour of Italy and Germany with Benny King? My God. The man who wrote Stand By Me. My well, of course, gosh. you know, for a little kid from Gosport, this is unbelievable. And I'm a soul freak as well. You know, grew up with Motown and, and Stax and whatever. So one week we're playing in some grubby pub in Gosport and the next week we're walking on stage playing Stand By Me with Benny King. I mean, just oh a sliding gosh. door moment. That opened the door to many other uh, occasions. Edwin Starr, yes. who was a Motown artist, big hits. He had a, a career in the 60s playing soul music. Then he had another career in the late 70s uh, as a disco star. He wrote some disco songs. And... Um, and I worked with him on two uh, separate occasions. On the second occasion, uh, he gave me a permanent job and made me his musical director. And that's the first time I kind of 
was in charge properly. Uh, and I learned then that on the road in America, the actual sort of what it takes to be a professional musician in America, in a black band, traveling through the southern states. How did you feel vulnerable at all, or did you? No, feel I didn't they were actually. Protecting you? No, I was naively, naively pro protected by my own naivety because, um, having come from the south of England, I mean, I never saw a black person, to be honest, unless he was on TV. Yeah. So I didn't work with any any black artists until this. Um, I had no idea what their situation was, and I just assumed that whatever sort of unpleasantness there may have been, it was all over and done with. Well, of course we know that's not the case. And, mm. and it was exemplified by me uh, one day, we were driving down through Carolina, South Carolina somewhere, and we stopped at a gas stop. And uh, the guys, now these guys, I mean, I was in my early 20s, these guys are older in their 30s and 40s, and some of them were legends in their own right. They played with the OJs and lots of uh, the Philadelphia Soul, the Stylistics and people like that, musicians that really had a you know, their reputations. And here I was, and I could never work it out at first why I was in charge. I thought it was my brilliance, but it wasn't, it was another reason. But when we pulled up this one day en route go, going south, they all gave, they gave me a list. And I said, what's that? And they said, oh, three packs of cigarettes, two packs of uh, crisps, you know. And I said, guys, you know, I'm not your lackey. You, you know, you get your own bloody snacks. They said, no, you don't understand. We can't go in there. He said, if we go in there, we'll get shot. <gasps> and I went, oh, don't be ridiculous. That, that, that doesn't exist. And they said, said, now, you're the new boy in town. Don't you think we know how this country works? Oh, my gosh. And that was real eye-opening for me. What year was this, Spike? Uh, 78. So late on. Yeah. Oh, no, you think it's all done. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that it's all that kind of thing. It's history. But no, not at all. Um, I'm horrified. Yeah, really. Um, and then, uh, and so I took on that role. I, once they explained to me and I understood, then I was the shopping boy. I, whenever we stopped or went, we wanted to go somewhere, they knew instinctively where they could go and where they couldn't. Yes. I couldn't tell what the difference was, but they said, if we go in there, shit will start and it'll, it'll either be a fight or guns will come My out. My gosh. Yeah. And it's still like that now. Do you think it is? Yeah, it's no different. No, there are, there are places I where it's, it's totally really endemic, you know. Really? Yeah. It'll never change then, do you think? It's going to take a really long time to change. Uh, and and uh, no matter what politicians say, yeah. it's the unwritten law of certain parts of America that um, places you just don't go. You know? But the reverse is true as well, because um, there's uh, an area in Washington, D.C., not a stone's throw from the White House, mm -hmm. which is a big um, coloured enclave in terms of the black population of DC lives within a few square blocks, right? And um, this night in 77, uh, the drummer of Edwin Starr's band was an ex-Vietnam vet. He had survived the war. He was man mountain, he was huge. And he used to carry a machine gun that was a two-man machine gun, but he was so big he would carry it himself. Um, <laughs> And he took it shine to me, and I was like a little puppy dog, you know, his little, little mate from gospel back in the day, and I was sort of thin and weedy. And, and he said to me, you, you want to come down and meet me at this party? I said, great, where is it? And he gave me the address, and I said, what time? He said, come down at 11 o'clock. I said, oh, it seems a bit late. He said, well, won't really start till then. So I, 
I get in a taxi and I show the bit of paper to the taxi driver and he looks at the paper and he looks at me and he looks back at the paper and he says, you don't want to go there. And I went, yeah, I do. And he said, no, believe me, you don't want to go there. And I said, well, I know people. I want to go. And he said, okay. So we get in and we drive off and suddenly I realise we're in a different landscape. You know, it's not... My comfort zone is shifting a little bit. Yes. And I realise we're getting deeper and deeper into this. Uh, I think they were called the projects. I think that's the sort of local name for them. Um, and anyway, he stopped and he said, OK, that door over there, that's where you want to go. And I said, all right. By this time, I was getting a little bit windy about it. And, uh, and I said, OK, um, do me a favour. Just wait here. I'm going to go and see if my buddy's there. And if he's not, you can take me out. He said, sure, no problem. I take two steps away from the cab. Whoom, he's gone. So now I think, oh, well, big boy pants are on now. And so I go, I could hear the music thumping. And the music of that time was disco and funk. I mean, it was great music. I loved it. You know? Yeah. Um, and I could hear this fantastic, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire or something emanating from behind the door. So it's bang on the door. This guy came to the door, looked just like Huggy Bear, wearing a hat and sort of rolling a, a cigarette of an indeterminate origin. And... Uh, and he looked at me and said, motherfucker, are you in the wrong place? And I went, um, okay, uh, I'm here to see my friend Ronell. Thinking this all sounds so lame and I'm going to get my ass kicked from here to, to Philadelphia. And, um, and then he said, you better get, better get going, buddy. You know, in, in other words, get out of here before you end up in real trouble. And just at that moment, a big voice booms out and said, hey, is that my buddy Spike? And it was Ronell. And I said, thank you, Ronell, it's me, it's little on me. And he comes to the doorway, pushing this dude out of the way, with, you know, dismissing him. And he puts his arm around me and he brings me into this room, which is dark and thumping and people are wearing the most outrageous clothes. It's fantastic. Um, and he just bellowed at the top of his voice, this is my buddy. You fuck with him, you'll be fucking with me. And they went, oh, okay. And next minute, I'm everybody's best friend. And, they, and all the women are saying, oh, I love the way you talk and all that kind of thing. And then some guy hands me this doobie. And I thought, I'll have a go on that. And I'm just about to smoke it. And Ronell snatches it away and says, you don't want that. I said, well, yeah, I do. Uh, I'm a grown man. I can smoke drugs. Uh, he said, no, you don't want that. I said, well, why not? He said, that's angel dust. Ooh. And I said, and what does that do? He said, well, let me tell you. It made James Brown shoot his car. <laughs> <laughs> so... So I thought, yeah, he's right. So I danced the night away. Now, Spike, I'm just trying to think when we first met, and I can't remember. Neither can I, so we must have been drinking. I know where, Ed and Lulu's house. Oh, yeah. And it was one Christmas, and everybody was having a nice time, and then suddenly you went onto the piano and started playing carols for us. Oh. That stopped everybody getting really drunk and being silly, and we all started singing. And you were the master of ceremonies. Ah, well, yes. That comes from a history, a parental history, because um, my parents were, were young. I think my mum was like 21 or 22 and she had me. And they were kids in the Second World War, both of them. My dad was too young to go. He didn't get called up until after the war was over to do national service. Um, so he was a young teenager during the Second World War. My mum was a bit younger than that. And, of course, during the war, singing was the main morale booster that they had because 
living in Portsmouth, um, Portsmouth is a massive target um, for during the Blitz, got bombed, uh, bombed on a regular basis and some of it was quite horrendous. And they all lived in a little two up, two down terraced houses. And everybody kind of stayed within the same part. You know, if you were born in this street, you probably ended up living in the street next door kind of thing, you know, yeah. as you really got older. So there was a lot of that going on. Family stayed closer to each other, mm -hmm. more close-knit. Mm -hmm. And so um, when nighttime came around, they would go to the Anderson shelter, which was at the bottom of the garden, which was a, a sort of corrugated tube that you dug into the ground and covered with earth. And that was, that's where you slept at night if you were expecting air raids. Good heavens, really? Yeah, and, and if you woke up in the morning and your house was still there, that was good. That was a good day. And if you woke up in the morning, you came out and there was a big hole where your house used to be, you would throw everything that you could find into a pram or a handcart and go and find an empty house and move into it. Do you remember this? I'm too young. For, I wasn't born until the 50s. No. So, but my mum and dad talked about it, how they went from house to house. They went, they moved three times during the war, I think. And uh, my nan... Uh, left me uh, a barometer, which was uh, a family heirloom of some kind, covered in shrapnel and scars from where it got bombed. I've, do you know what? I've only seen photographs, black and white photographs, obviously, of children pushing prams, pushing carts. With the stuff in. With, you know, toys and bits from the yeah, house well, that was it. furniture. My God. And it, was, and it was not called squatting. It was a, a wartime uh, acceptance that you, you found an empty house, you could move in. And that was it, and that's what people did. Um, and so, of course, vast swathes of the middle of Portsmouth got destroyed because everybody worked for the dockyard, yeah. and everybody wanted to live close to the dockyard, and that's how it grew up. Um, and singing was their morale booster, I suppose. Um, they had the radio, but it didn't, and it played the hits of the day, but actually performing for each other was the thing. So I grew into a family. Uh, my mum had a, a four brothers and five brothers my dad had uh, a brother and sister but the family get-together was a regular thing um one of the uncles had a barber shop and um so whenever there was an excuse um a wedding a funeral christening or whatever the whole family would congregate and sing and so these were songs that ranged from hits uh, of from vaudeville or variety or uh, the music hall um big hits from the before the war and then the wartime hits themselves, you know, the we'll meet again and White Cliffs of Dover and all that kind of stuff. But we could sit down and sing for five, six hours. We start at eight o'clock and finish at two o'clock in the morning. What a wonderful childhood. Yeah, and that was a regular thing. And so having grown up with that, of course, when my time, and all the uncles played guitars and stuff, when my time came and I was dispensed to learn the piano, um, and it was my duty to kind of be involved with that. Uh, it was an unspoken duty. You just knew that you would yeah. be part. But it was fun. You know, I didn't regard that as a chore. I thought that was actually really good fun. Um, and so then gradually as the old folks died off and all couldn't play anymore, then it fell on my shoulders. So really what, that, what you saw was the product of all that stuff. How absolutely fabulous. Which will end with me, because none of my, um, you know, I don't have offspring, but the family kids don't, are not interested. Nieces and nephews. No, no, it's a different of... era now, isn't it? Yeah, well, Everything I... Everything is so completely different. Yes, it is. I mean, and we can lament it. I mean, but there are some of those uh, historical things that were quite uplifting 
that um, for a while was seen to be just old fashioned and nonsense. You know, when yeah. the 60s came around, a lot of that stuff was discarded in favor of the, the bright new things. But in fact, they, they were good. They had, you know, there was good spirit and good heart to them. And, and I'm amazed. Well, actually, when my mum eventually ended up in a home, um, I used to go down and sing and play for her and all the others. And it's amazing to see they'd be sat there like just staring into space, dribbling. The moment you start playing and they hear a song they know, they're back. They're alive. Oh, my gosh. And all of a sudden, you know, their eyes are sparkling and they're singing with gusto and, and for those, you know, few, oh, few minutes. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was good. Oh, it was good. absolutely wonderful. And also I can see where... Um, where your love of piano comes from, because it's it's all it's built in you naturally. Ingrained, yes. Ingrained, yeah, yeah. yeah. You've been the master, music master, haven't you? Director of several bands, including Queen. No, I'm not the musical director of Queen. That's a misnomer. Um, nobody tells Queen what to do. No, but they. I mean, Roger said it the other night. Oh yeah, but a musical director of it. And you were I, fantastic. I helped him. I helped you him were up so with that was, thank you very much. I'm glad you noticed. Um, no, it's slightly different. With Queen, it's, um, they have enough sort of musical power to be able to be their own directors. They know what they want and what they don't want. What I'm there to do is to remind them <laughs> of what they want and what they don't want. Because uh, with something like that, with so many songs and such a long career, there have been literally dozens of versions of songs as they have been uh, tinkered with over the years, like some have been sped up, some have slowed down, some have done uh, played acoustically, some have been turned into medleys. So whenever a new tour comes up, uh, we have to, people are scratching their heads, okay, well, what are we gonna do on this tour? We said, well, we've done this song four or five different ways. And, it's, and I'm like, the, I'm the court stenographer. I've got the records of what, uh, okay. what we've all done. And we said, well, have we ever medleyed this song with that song? Yes, we have, we did it back in 19, 100 wow. and what's it and wow. and um and so it's more a bit like that and and or if we get stuck we can't figure something out it's not working then i'll sort of throw in some ideas into the hat to see if anything gets done but the other evening when when we went to go and see roger taylor's band yeah. which was sensational by the way thank you i couldn't believe how fabulous everybody yeah, was. it was good good but i noticed that and then i thought because you were the musical director i noticed that it was heavy 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 rock and roll and then it became a little gentle so it was rather like a wave rather gentle sweet music and then heavy bashing rock and roll I, again i have and a lot it sort of went in a wave yeah. like that and I go, i'm glad you noticed that because um, god spike is so clever it's that is my um kind of uh, passion to try and when I do have the influence and the difference about the Roger thing is that we actually built it from scratch mm -hmm. we got players who hadn't played together or half the band had never played together um, and walked into a studio with a bunch of material that had never been played live most of it um, only in the studio and created a show from scratch and there and that was real a case of direction because arranging the songs so that they weren't too long, too short, or, or too boring, or whatever. And then placing them in a set list to make the set list keep the audience interested when maybe 60% of those songs they had never heard. Because it's very difficult for audiences to hear new material. It is. They, they slightly rebel. You yeah, they do. They want, to hear the, they want to hear big hits yes. and stuff they know. They don't want to have to concentrate. So you have to drip feed. You can't do too much. And so you, you sort of grab them with something they know and then slip 
a new one in. I see. And while they're reeling from that, saying, <laughs> I'm not sure whether I like this or not, yeah. then you do another one that they know and, yes. and you get them back. And then hopefully you can work them through and take them through the emotions till by the time you get to the end, if you've done your job properly, after a couple of ups and downs and lulls, you go on an upward climb that doesn't stop right to the very end till they're exhausted and it's over. And that's yeah. really where you want to be. I tell you, it worked. It worked so perfectly. I'm glad about that, yeah. I really, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. I really um, did. And, and I suppose it's a case of instinctive awareness and experience of having done it. You say, well, you, you know, there are certain rules. Don't follow a song that's fast and in this key with another fast song in the same key because it's too much, you know. Yeah. So you want to I go see. somewhere on a I journey, see. you know. And if you're going to come down, come down and come all the way down. And when you come out, come up big because then it will be the shock of the yeah. new again, you know. I tell you, it worked. Yeah. Really Dynamics, we call it. Dynamics. Well done. Now, before playing with Roger and Queen... What band were you with? Uh, well, I was, after working with the Americans, I came back penniless, having had a great time in America, but not making any money. Yeah. Um, and started again, I moved to London from Gosport, something I vowed I would never do because I hated London. But I did, I moved and I ended up with a, a f almost free flat in Pimlico, which is unbelievable. Um, the universe smiled on me. And then I started to sort of, tread the boards and, and knock on doors around uh, the London session scene. Try to, you know, just do cheap sessions, try to get known. And uh, we had one friend who got himself a job as a tea boy in a studio. And um, that studio was owned by Tony Visconti. Oh, right. And we all, we know Tony Visconti from his work with Mark Bolan and Bowie yes. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So Tony Visconti bought this uh, studio. And um, he was lamenting one day that he needed some horn players for something. And the T-boy said, oh, I know a couple of guys and I can get them here this afternoon. So it's all down to who you know. Those things happen on a whim. Yeah. And so he phoned me up and I was only in Pimlico, which is, wasn't far away. And, uh, and the, my sort of partner was just down in Sheen. East Sheen. And I said, there's something happening, you know, and we ran into town and there we were playing on a Boomtown Rats record. Oh, uh, my God. When they were still something, you know. Really? Um, and uh, got on really well. You know, Geldof was hysterical, um, completely anarchic. Um, anyway, we played on these three songs or, or got the framework of something and then Tony Visconti seemed pleased enough. And he said, look, he said, I'm going to leave these now. I'm going to work on them and I'll, then you come back and we'll finish them off. And so we did. And then Geldof said, um, oh, wow, when this record comes out, do you want to go on tour? I went, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Oh, wow. So that is, that's what we call a break. Yes. And the other big break was the same studio. And just a little bit before that, before t just before Tony Visconti bought that studio, we had been there before. And in fact, we had made some, some really good demos from our own band many years before. Um, and the engineer that were on... that did those demos for us when he was just starting out, was now a fully-fledged producer. And he wanted some horns as well, but he knew us already. And he knew we were in London, and he, and he called, and he said, uh, do you want to come and play horns? I've only got a couple of hours. I've got to make a 12-inch remix of this single, this single that's just being released of a new band. And um, I've got a couple of hours tonight. Do you want to come and bang some horns down very quickly for me? You know, there's 20 quid in it for you, kind of thing. And we said, sure. And we turn up and we do it. And it's the first single for a band called Duran Duran. 
Stop. And, really? Yeah. And but you weren't a horn player though, were you? Yeah, I was trombonist. Oh, were you? Yeah, my career in London started out on trombone because I figured that there were too many keyboard players around. I didn't have any, nobody knew me as that. But as a trombonist, the, the competition wasn't quite as oh, stiff. Oh, I see. You know. Oh, well done. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so we, we played on this song, Planet Earth, but only for the 12-inch mix. And the, and the song went into the charts. It was a big chart, big hit. And then um, they said to us, oh, we, in two days' time, um, we have a showcase gig in Paris for our European record company, French record company, whatever. Do you want to come and play uh, on the encores and we'll bring the horn section on for the encores? And we said, yeah, great. And they said, and I said, well, what do we do? Are we all get on a bus and go? Said, no, we're getting on a bus and going. Um, here's 50 quid, see you there. And it was the see you there tour because they couldn't afford to take us on their bus. There wasn't enough room. <laughs> so we had to jump, <laughs> jump on a ferry and make our own way to Paris. On 50 quid? Yeah, well, it was 1982 no, yeah, or something. Exactly. Um, so we played our three songs at the end and we were staying in some little horrible B&B, you know, in order to save money so that we could make money out of it. Yeah. Uh, and at the end of it, he said, wow, that was brilliant. Um, in two days' time, we're in Amsterdam. We went, yeah. He said, it's 50 quid. See you there. <laughs> <laughs> My God, what fun. Yeah. So who else were the other horn players? Um, uh, there's a guy called Andy Hamilton who went on, uh, who was my sort of partner in crime from Gosport, played in the same band, mm. and he had been in America with me. We'd been through the wars together, really. And uh, uh, but he then went on to play with another young singer who was doing some stuff called George Michael. So he ended up being George Michael's saxophone player, yeah. and I ended up with Queen. So we sort of both found our found our path. I love this story. But. But during that period of um, 80, I moved to London in 1980 and I got the job with Queen in 84. So those four years were spent just ducking and diving, really. I'd spent, uh, did a couple of tours with Dexy's Midnight Runners. But oh, yeah. I got fired for my attitude. It was, I, was, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I don't know, I didn't blend in well enough. I was having too much fun. Um, and then I did some stuff with all kinds of people. We were Thomas Dolby, Bucks Fizz. Um, just every time you did something, something else would come out of it, you know. And you never knew who you were working with, whether they would be a nobody today and a huge star tomorrow. There was a lot of that. Of course, there's some people who didn't make it or, yeah. or never went any further. But um, All of this, everything that you're talking about, I think happened, squashed into a few years, really, wasn't it? When you think about the amazing music and the... Um, the incredible amount of artists that came from America and were all pushed together yeah. in London. Yeah. And um, oh, know, was... I mean, we're talking about just like a few years. It wasn't over 20 or 10 years, was it? Oh, well, the thing was, um, when you speak to people from the generation before me, the guys who were in their prime in the mid-60s, the London recording scene was very hot and there were a handful of people that did kind of everything because they were the best. And we're talking about John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. They were kings of the, of the scene. And you'll find that they played on so many different massive hits of the 60s mm -hmm. um, because they were the go-to guys. They were the guys who got the first call. And then if they couldn't do it, then there was the second call and the I third see. call. So, um, and I've got friends, uh, the lovely Madeline Bell, who you know. I adore. And uh, she was... Uh, 
a singer on the scene in those days, so she got She was with Blue Mink, wasn't she? She was, which was, which was something that was put together especially for her. Um, but her and Kiki D were partners in crime and they sang on everything as backing singers uh, before they became artists in their own right. So there, there was this kind of uh, setup where good players did quite well. And it, but it would help if you could read. And I'm, my reading was always a bit patchy. I had a good ear mm -hmm. so I could manage quite well. I could bluff my way fairly well. Once I heard something once, I could pretty much play it. So I was fortunate with that. Um, but... Once I left gospel in 1980, my life was really much one session to the next. Some of it was rubbish, some of it was brilliant. Um, and it was uh, in the summer of 84 that um, I, the door opened and I got a chance to do the thing with Queen. And uh, here Gosh, we are. Yeah. never look back. Yeah. Well, you're a great addition to that band, I must say. Well, you're very, it's nice of you to say so. Well, you know that we're in London now, obviously. And I've always thought that this flat that Rod and I rent belonged to Freddie Mercury at one time. Yes. Uh, and, well. and when I asked Roger, he came here, he wasn't sure. So we're still sort of on tenterhooks and excited by the possibility. Finding so we out. named our dog Freddie. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, sadly, I think... It's not true. Not true. I think it was number 12. Oh, no. So I'm sorry about that. In a perfect world, I would have lied to you. Yeah. So it's, oh, it's on the same side of the road, though. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, and, but I think it was the basement. I think it was the ground floor flat. Was it? Yes. I just want to thank you so much, Spike, for doing this little, little chat. And so interesting to hear your life story, in a way, your musical life story. Yes. Fantastic. And I have to agree, this olive stuffed with a little blue cheese... Is a, has picks up a most delicious flavour as it's been soaking in, yes. the, in the vodka. And I had a bite of one. Mm, it's really good. Mum, I didn't raise no fool. So I, um, That's I, for I, sure. I have to, I have to uh, live in opposition to my uh, darling wife when she says that I'm a Philistine. I'm a mart martini heathen by having it. But I think that food recipes develop. So why, so why can't drink recipes? This is another taste. It is yeah, just it is. fabulous. And my other alternative is the jalapeno, which I love. And not many people like that because it's very strong. But, but I do. I think it's fantastic. So. And some days I'll mix and match. I'll have a jalapeno and a blue cheese just for the excitement. Why not? Yep. Cheers again. Cheers. Lovely to see you. And you. Right. Thank you, Spike. I really want to thank Spike very, very much. He's clearly such a perfectionist. I mean, you know, to the last drop, as it were. He was great. And Spike, many thanks, darling. It was wonderful. Wonderful to see you and lovely to have drinks with you. It was amazing to uh, meet Spike and, and hear his journey and all the different artists that he's played with. And, um, and uh, yeah, just some of the stories were, were amazing. So thank you, Spike. Great to meet you. And we've got a couple more episodes uh, to come, so stay with us. Um, we want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's listened to uh, season two so far. Uh, the response has been incredible, and uh, especially um, the Roger Taylor episode, which um, it hit 10,000 views on YouTube, uh, which um, is phenomenal. So thank you so much. Um, if you want to stay connected with uh, the podcast and everything, check out pattyspodcast.co.uk. All the socials, all the news, everything you need to know is there. So check it out. 
And um, if you're listening on Spotify and uh, iTunes, thank you. Be sure to leave a review and a like. And uh, if you want to, go to the YouTube and again, subscribe, like, um, and all that good stuff. And uh, we'll see you again in the next episode.